politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at the Conservative Review Blaze Media on Tuesday, September 22nd. And folks, on a day like today, I really need to do three separate full shows. One on the virus, one on the anarchy and crime, and one, of course, on the Supreme Court, because each issue is just so dense, so much news, so much unique thought that we have here as an independent conservative that you're not going to hear elsewhere, unique perspective. We'll have to mainly focus on the courts today, try to do a little bit of an assortment. We have a special guest, a law professor, to discuss the state of play with the vacancy, the courts in general, where we're headed with judicial supremacism, one of the few out there in the legal business that uh, agrees with me on judicial supremacism. So we'll get to him in a couple moments. Um, Just wanted to set the table with an important point. And I made this during the Kavanaugh hearings. And that is, it is truly a sight to behold. What a movement and a coherent, cohesive political party actually looks like. I mean, judicial nominees is the only thing that you will actually get Republicans united on. And they're actually willing to fight, stay on message. And and it works. We're always told, though, Daniel, you can't do this. You can't do that. We have to do Corona fascism. Uh, The people agree with it. We have to do this. The people want it. We have to have open borders. Oh, we have to have the homosexual agenda. (laughs) Really? What if you would actually have a united front where rather than throwing grenades at each other, you would actually fight the left? Well, they don't because they are the left and they believe in the left, most Republicans. But I'm just telling you, it's remarkable watching the unity, Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romney even. They're all saying, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to fill the vacancy. It it just demonstrates and it gives you a little bit of an insight into what could be if we actually had a real party. Just on one issue, we see that. But this could be that way on every issue. So I think that is a very important observation. Now, Just to be clear, it's not coming from a good place. (laughs) It's coming from a bad place. Because they sell us out on every other issue, this is the one way they keep conservatives on the plantation. Oh, don't vote for us. Yeah, you're right. We suck. You're right. Everything. You know, we're not going to give you anything, but we're going to pick the people on the courts and they determine everything. So number one, they're buttressing judicial supremacism. Number two, they're basically... The reason why Mitch McConnell loves this so much is because it absolves him of any responsibility. Yeah, it's all the courts. So just yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna point point of justice. Which leads me to my next point. My next point. And it's a point I started to talk about yesterday. We're gonna talk about it with our guest. And that is is this kind of, and I hate to be crude here, but is this like going to the bathroom? Like you just have to relieve yourself, you have to get it done. Republicans are like, we got to fill the vacancy, fill the vacancy. And they're united about it, and they're emphatic about it. But somehow that emphatic, intrepid quest for winning the judicial game doesn't extend to verification of whether the nominee actually is with us 
on the issues of our time that we know will come before the court. You see, because this is classic Republican. They, they, they're not conservative. They don't believe in what we believe. They don't believe in the outcomes we believe. They don't care about the judicial outcomes. They care about the optics of winning the judicial game. McConnell loves it. I'm going to fill the seat. Well, it's like saying I'm going to go to the bathroom. Well, I mean, that's great, but who are you going to fill it with? We're going to talk about in the coming days, I'm going to revamp my list of questions, mainly the same ones I had in 2017 with a couple new ones. But don't we want to know where they are in birthright citizenship for illegal aliens? Where are they on the plenary power doctrine? Where are they on various clauses of the 14th Amendment? Where are they on the virus? I don't mean the science and the politics. I mean, legally, could a state put a travel ban on another state? I mean, these are basic constitutional questions. Could, do, do the state's police powers over quarantine extend to locking down the healthy? Something we've never done before. Do you believe Jacobson? Jacobson v. Massachusetts in 1905 that's being cited to control us, forced vaccination, is that good law? What are the limitations to public health powers of a state as it intersects with the Bill of Rights? Doesn't the Privileges and Immunities Clause protect your own bodily integrity in your home, preclude stay-at-home orders for healthy people, mask-wearing to force someone to take a positive action over their lungs in order to walk freely? Let us know. Where do you stand on that? And the thing is, we don't know on a single issue. It's like the bar has been set so low that almost always the Republican nominees, we have downright bad vibes on certain issues. Like I had both with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, not saying they're bad on every issue, but we had bad vibes and they were proven correct. And we've really only gotten, out of the 13 Republican-appointed justices since Nixon, we've only gotten four that could be considered good, Scalia, Thomas, Rehnquist, and Alito. And I would say, really, Scalia and Thomas were at a higher level. And that's it. Most of the others have been progressives, or they turned progressive after a few years. And and we all know this. We all talk about it. We say we're not going to make the mistake. And then like, now now I want to make very clear. Right now, unless there's some rope-a-dope, all the names that are being bantied about, I don't have any like smoking gun that, even to the level I had with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, I didn't have a good feeling. I don't have any bad feeling. Um, You know, if the reports are true, it's mainly decided on Amy Barrett. I don't have any bad feelings. I have some good vibes about her, but we still don't really know where she stands in it. Well, Daniel, we usually don't know. Well, yeah, but that not that the problem? I mean, isn't that what we need to change? We need to get commitments. If this is going to be a super legislature, then I want to know where you stand on all the issues. You want to join with me and end that super legislature status? Fine, but no one wants to do that. We're going to say our future is decided there. So I want to know if courts are going to be able to strike down marriage, gender, life, election law we're going to get into today, 
basically allowing Democrats to win every election through fraudulent voting. We saw that in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all these judges, every state now, they're siding with the Democrats. Then you better believe I want the veto super legislature striking down power to be used against Corona fascism. Now, Amy Barrett didn't write, but signed on to this um, Diane Wood. It's a very, very, very liberal justice in the seventh circuit upholding uh, Illinois governor Pritzker's shelter at home and restrictions on gatherings, you know, the whole thing. And, I need to read it a little bit more carefully. I skimmed it. Again, she didn't write it, but she signed on to it. It was unanimous. It was another Trump uh, appointee. It was written, the third judge who wrote it was a Clinton appointee. Um, You know, I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, Daniel, you like a hands-off approach. I mean, you think this stuff should be decided politically. Again, to be clear, what I've said is that I don't think courts should be the final say on a broadly political issue affecting the whole of the people, like election law. Like, I don't like showing photo ID, but does that that really preclude a fundamental right? Show me a person who can't get it, and then, and then we can have a case over it. You can't just abstractly strike down a policy you don't like. But if you're like, you're going to criminalize me for opening my business. You're going to criminalize me for not wearing a mask. You're going to criminalize me for having my church open. So that is an individualized grievance, and... While even in those cases, I don't believe that the other branches are powerless in fighting back and that the word of the court should be taken as with finality just because it's the word of the court. But I do believe if that case is brought before a judge, the judge does have to look at the Constitution. I've said that numerous times. And you should rule with the Constitution. Now, again, I, this might be a little bit more nuanced. I'm not saying it's a rip on Amy Barrett. But what I am trying to say is don't judge a judge based on the left's reaction or the optics. I supported her as opposed to Kavanaugh because I felt that she would definitely not be worse than him and just politically it would be much better for us rather than fighting about a frat boy. And again, God forbid, I don't believe the fallacious allegations against him. I'm talking about before then. He was just kind of an establishment DC type of guy that they're able to demagogue much easier. I'm not saying it's his fault. To me, I would rather them attack us at our strong point, make this about religion. So I think the optics politically will be terrific. Her life story, they're going to attack Catholics. It's going to crush them in the election. They're going to look crazy. She's very soft-spoken. It will come out very well. But as you all know, I'm not much of a person to deal with fluff. There's what to be said about that. But does that necessarily mean she is going to vote with Clarence Thomas every time? Could be. Could be. You know, I don't, it's not like the other ones where I could swear to you they're not going to on many cases. I just don't know. And I just want to make sure we don't create this like whole Trey Gowdy, Dan Crenshaw thing out of someone because of their life story. Um, Again, it doesn't take away from her. But I just need to know more. I mean, we rush into this stuff. And I don't mean we should hold it over the election, but like, I I don't want to. We, we, We should make sure we get it in while we can. And, you know, from what I know, I'd be pretty happy with her nomination. But let's make sure we know. I mean, do we know for sure where she is on the death penalty? I know there's a statement out there that kind of sounds like she's saying, even as a judge, 
you have to go with the Catholic Church. Remember, Scalia was a devout Catholic. Heck, all of the recent conservatives were devout Catholics. Alito, Thomas. Um, but they were very clear, like, either they downright disagreed with the church on on de- the death penalty, or if they personally didn't, certainly in their jurisprudence, they're like, no, we're, you know, this is what we've done. It's been constitutional. And since our founding, this is what we're doing. Um, we need to know that. You know, that is something that, I mean, I mean, I'm just saying like, Go down the list of issues, immigration, election law, you know, affirmative action, um, uh, the, the death penalty, the virus, um, Eighth Amendment stuff, obviously the transgenderism, Bostock. Would you overturn Bostock? We should have confidence. confidence. And I'm telling you, when you read my article, when I put it out of 17, 18 questions, ask yourself how many answers do we have and also like if a lower court issues a novel terrible ruling will you quickly grant cert to overturn that we need to know that oh daniel we can't we have to be fair-minded judges well the judiciary is a super legislature it's not fair-minded judges so i want to play if we're going to play the judicial game like the left i want to play it like the left the left they know the answer to all those questions on their people I want to know the answer to all those questions and our people on the issues that will come before them. I'm sorry. Oh, that's not fair, Daniel. So then then, then leave me alone. Then, then stop saying this is the savior of life and everything comes down to it. Oh, and this time we won't be fooled if we're always fooled because we never get those answers. And then it comes to the confirmation hearings and it's like they agree with the left. Oh, no, Daniel, they're just trying to do it. And it's like the, the, the left tries to play gotcha with the Republican nominees on proving that they're a conservative. And then they run away from it. And rather than Republicans be like, you know, hey, like there's problems in these lower courts. You know, do you agree with this? Do you agree with these crazy opinions? They just like joke around with them and kind of run out the clock on their time. You know, the the Republican senators in the Judiciary Committee. I'm not saying I'd be rough on them, but I just like, just say like, you know, where, where, where do you stand on this? Do you believe that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment precludes state governors from violating the Bill of Rights. As Clarence Thomas does. You know, do you believe that the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, does not mean outcomes, it means the method of the punishment, like torture, the very simple meaning as it meant during the founding and only things that were viewed that way during the founding at the time of the ratification are considered cruel and unusual punishment. Not, you know, barring uh, homeless encampments in Boise, Idaho. I mean, we need to know that. I mean, I could guess, depending on which candidate, on some of the issues with a fair degree of confidence that they'd be good on it, but we just don't know on a lot of issues. So that, that, that's just to set the, the baseline here. I, I don't want to always sound like a naysayer. And in, and in this case, I really have a better feeling than the other times. But again, if this is the issue du jour, we should have the best feeling with certitude. We shouldn't have to be guessing. That's my point. So now that you guys heard my thesis on the state of play with the Supreme Court, I want to give you more of an expert opinion on what's going on now, but also to zoom back in general 
what we're seeing with the power of the courts, the political ramifications of judicial supremacism in the era we live in, is that going to change? Is you know, Are the courts going to move to the right? Or maybe the left will destroy their own house, the house they built of judicial supremacism, because maybe now they'll fear wrongly or rightly that they're going to lose control of that game, and maybe they're, they're just going to blow it all up. Where are we? So with us today is Professor Derek Muller. He graduated with a JD from University of Notre Dame Law School, which, you know, that is the alma mater of the front runner for the SCOTUS vacancy. So we're going to want to get his take on that. Um, he is, you know, after pro- practicing in private law for a couple of years, he became a visiting professor at Penn State Law, University of Iowa College of Law. Um, and his alma mater, University of Notre Dame Law School. In 2011, he became associate professor at Pepperdine Law School, very pre- prestigious uh, institution there. He's taught courses in election law, federal court, civil procedure, and administrative law, and evidence. And uh, that is a lot of what we want to talk about today and probably future shows as well. You could follow him on Twitter at Derek T. Muller, and Muller is spelled M U L L E R, not the funny way. Hey, Professor, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've, I've wanted to get you on for a while, and I know you're busy with your teaching schedule. Um, big picture, am I unreasonable from an, an originalist perspective with the following view? Everyone on the right, and when I say right, even, even the notional conservative kind of moderate Republicans all seem to be remarkably united. Yeah, we need originalist judges. It, it, it's it's almost become a a bromide. It's it's standard dogma among anyone who calls themselves right of center or Republican that we've had too many of these judges that just create novel rights or novel ideas that are either not in the Constitution or antithetical to the Constitution as it was originally uh, conceived. Um, originalism to me is very simple. Um, Justice William Patterson, uh, I guess, what was he, the second chief justice, he wrote in 1795, what is a constitution? It is the form of government delineated by the mighty hand of the people in which certain first principles of fundamental law are established. It's certain and fixed. It contains the permanent will of the people, supreme law of the land. It's paramount to the power of the legislature and can be revoked or altered only by the authority that made it. So to me, I take that pretty literal. And to me, when you look at all of our 14th Amendment jurisprudence, you look at so much of what we've done from Roe through Obergefell to Bostock, so much of what we've been doing on election law, where we've gone from states controlling time methods and procedures to federal judges controlling every single um dotted I and cross T of election procedure. Um, Everything we see in the courts today that affect the future of our culture, society, even who wins elections is now determined by the courts. And it's determined mainly in a very specific direction that whether one agrees from a matter of policy or not, seems to be very divorced from the system we established. And everyone seems to agree to this in a Fed sock or right of center originalist legal lecture hall circles. But then when we get to the Super Bowl, 
Like, Daniel, this is all that matters. You know my view, Derek, that I'm not so into judicial nominees because I think we need to fix structurally the way we view the judiciary first. But everyone is into that. And, and I respect that. I understand it. So is it unreasonable for me to want to know, like, hey, do you believe, you know, in Clarence Thomas's view of the Privileges and Immunities Clause? Do you believe in substantive due process? Do you believe birthright citizenship of illegal immigrants is mandated? I mean, like, to me, I'm not asking about a specific bankruptcy case percolating in the courts. They're very clear structural positions of the Constitution that we should know where you are, but it seems like we never really know that. <laughs> yeah, so this is a big problem in uh, the, the recent history of Supreme Court judicial nominations, right? Um, for a, 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 and people can point to different problems, right? So some people will point back in particular to the episode involving Robert Bork, right, where his, his character was essentially assassinated for a series of views that he sort of put forth, uh, some of which might have been mainstream, some of which might not have been mainstream, some of which might not have necessarily towed the line for, for, for the left of center democratic causes. Um, but I think that moment has sort of spurred a lot of Republicans ever since to try to minimize any of this discussion about the merits of stuff. And it goes on both sides, right? Um, famously, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated, right, she, the, the precedent the Republicans will always cite is that they didn't have to ask her much about her views on abortion, even though, I mean, she was litigating these kinds of cases for the ACLU in the 1970s, right? So we get candidates that have thin resumes like, uh, you know, Justice David Souter, where uh, we sort of we have people who stand up for his character or we have those who sort of have these sort of cryptic positions like Chief Justice John Roberts, where we don't necessarily know everything they've had, but is such a sort of fine, upstanding, you know, spit polished kind of person. Right? So I think one of the major problems in the last 40 years, and I think there's, I, I think Democrats want to have the same kind of discussion that Republicans do, too, about what do these judges actually believe? And yet we sort of have assiduously avoided asking these judicial candidates what they believe. It's it's this kabuki theater is the, is the phrase commonly used. It's a series of questions about your your procedural role, your temperament, matters like this. And we've avoided getting into the hard things, I think, that you've identified. But, but my problem with that is you're right. Both sides are cagey. But the difference is. If you're going to see, I'm going to publish a list of like 18 questions tomorrow and <laughs> and you're going to see and you know this, that the Democrats, when they appoint a nominee, they know with certainty. I mean, I mean, certainty where they are <laughs> on those issues, that there yes. is no ambiguity, whereas with our people, I mean, from from my perspective, I have a better feeling and I want to get into this with you a little bit about the names that are being bandied about now than than the past two times. Um, but even with that said, could I tell you? where they are on those issues. I mean, in my personal view, I think anyone who truly is an originalist, they are not close calls. You know, you have very murky separation of powers questions, you know, times where Scalia and Thomas could have split and, sure. you know, really interesting um, academic cases. But then there's like, dude, like, okay, is transgenderism codified into that? Like, like, come on. I mean, even if you believe in that socially, but you know, you can't t tell me legally, intellectually that, that, um, 
you know, whether it's a, a statute from the 60s or whether it's an amendment from the 1860s, that it meant that, um, that it's included in that, um, whether you believe, you know, in um, that the death penalty for uh, juveniles is wrong or not. It, it, right. it, it, you just cannot say Roper comports with with the Constitution as it was adopted in the Eighth Amendment. Um, it, it means the methods at the time with like torture. It, it doesn't mean anything beyond that. I mean, we know that, but yet we can't get our guys to commit to that. We don't know. And, and if we know that intellectually they don't like it, like I, I know most of the names that are being bantied about. Let's just go with Roper. They probably don't believe in Roper, but how many of them would overturn Roper? And the reason why I bring up Roper, Derek, is because I'm not talking about stuff that's 70 years old, 50 years old, Roe. I'm talking about stuff that's even with the current roster of judges that even Roberts voted against. But once it's there, then Roberts will codify it in Montgomery and via Louisiana. He'll take it a step further, you know, not even life without parole. This is what bothers me that it's like, well, Daniel, I didn't mean that degree of originalism. <laughs> well, but then what's the point? Yeah. Well, I think so. I think there's two things going on in, in the question. One is um, to figure out what judges like think you need them as judges and you need them to write. And I think too often we've had these judges with, um, you know, pretty thin paper trails or, you know, thin records or, you know, especially the, the judges coming out of the D.C. circuit. You know, it's a vaunted, prestigious circuit. Um, they get sort of a, a pretty narrow slice of the kinds of cases that you're going to see. And so one of the things that I particularly appreciate about President Trump's first list, which, by the way, it appears he's, he's never going to nominate anyone off of that first list, right? by the way, um, <laughs> you know, it included some a lot of judges who had been under the radar, but who were sort of workhorse judges who wrote separately, uh, either concurring or dissenting opinions or in their majority opinions, articulated views of the law that I think many conservatives would laud. And it was extensive and it was consistent. So someone like Diane Sykes, right, on, in the Seventh Circuit in Milwaukee. And, it, you know, the fact that she's 62 right now uh, disqualifies her. Well, I mean, for me, I would take a judge like Judge Sykes, who has written very consistently on a series of, of yes. cases uh, on, on a wide variety of topics that you and I care about. And I think many of many right of center people would care about um, and take the fact that she might be a few years older than someone else who's, who's in their 40s or early 50s. Right. I think there's such an obsession on the age front that it sometimes has clouded the judgment of, of conservatives mm. to think about the cause. The second is this sticky problem you've pointed out about stare decisis, right, about how do you handle precedent? How do you handle overturning old cases? And the court has done it, and they've been inconsistent about how they do it. And this is, I mean, I think it's something that is is one of the biggest puzzles and riddles. And I think there's no question, the, the point you, you particularly identified, right? Um, Chief Justice Roberts undoubtedly is, uh, is increasingly viewing his role as an institutionalist, right? He views himself as sort of the, 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 the protector of the Supreme Court and its legitimacy. And if that means he has to write an opinion um, protecting uh, an abortion opinion that he dissented from just weeks earlier, 
uh, he's going to do it. <laughs> and so that's, I mean, that, that, that's sort of like a separate problem to wrap yeah. our minds around, right, about how we handle sort of the precedent problem. And, and one of the real riddles, Daniel, I tell you, it's, it's that lower courts don't get to handle precedent the same way the Supreme yes. Court yes. does. <laughs> and so how, we can ask them what they want to do about it, what they think about it, and we, we can watch them behave at the lower court level. But until push comes to shove, until they get up there and actually face it, you know, until they face big league hitting, I think this is just going to be this is just going to be the puzzle and riddle that we have about, and it's going to it's going to it's going to frustrate us indefinitely thinking about it. Yep, yep, and and that's my problem that we seek to fool the left, but we often fool ourselves. Like, oh, they're just doing it to get through the nomination. Well, how do you know they don't believe it? I mean, to me, I was very disturbed when I saw that Kavanaugh openly, openly said to Durbin categorically that he disagreed with, um, and darn, I'm forgetting her name on the DC circuit. It's a female judge. I can't believe Janice it. Rogers Brown. No, not Janice Rogers Brown. Um, <laughs> okay. It will come back to me. But ba- <laughs> basically in the Garza case where you had, um, an illegal alien, uh, supposedly a minor was a question about her age. A lot of them lie about it was seeking to force HHS to take her to an abortion clinic so you could now break into a country and force them to uh, give you a right to an abortion. And, you know, Kavanaugh dissented from the opinion, and he did it along the abortion jurisprudence to show how Rowan Casey didn't dictate that you had to do it directly like that. And then in came um, Henderson, Karen Henderson, that that's who it is. Yeah. Can't believe I forgot it. And and I, like I, I jumped out of my seat because you had all this litigation going on since the beginning of the Trump administration, really even under Obama, that's creating novel ideas. And and the reason why I like to talk about immigration in the courts because it's a great test for what you just talked about with stare decisis. How it's a one way ratchet. You could have the courts for 130 years in the most emphatic terms over and over again saying there's no area of law that where the political branches have more control than um you know immigration, right. the right to enter the country. Again, whatever your political views on that, you cannot say there is a right for someone, an affirmative right for someone over overseas to trespass up another country and then unilaterally assert jurisdiction and and get rights. You might want that to happen, but from a legal standpoint, without legislating that, you can't really say that it's just absurd. It's it's ancient, rooted in ancient principles. It's one language from the plenary power doctrine dating back 130 years. And in this generation, the lower courts are like, screw that. We're just going to do what we want. (laughs) We We think this is mean. And nobody spoke out against it. And then finally, Karen Henderson said, whoa, time out, time out. She's like, I know I'm, you know, (laughs) deviating from tradition here, what I'm supposed to be doing, because DOJ didn't even assert this argument. She actually um, laced into the Trump administration for being so dumb not to assert this argument. She's like, I I can't ignore the fact that the antecedent to the abortion question is the immigration question. It is as if this woman is physically standing outside our boundary. So even if this is the greatest right in the world, it's no better than the First Amendment and Second Amendment that is often curtailed even for legal immigrants that, I mean, she is not in the country. She is, you know, she does. She's not entitled to that. And how do we even get here? And to me, that is an ironclad principle. If you're an originalist, even if you're 
you know, politically more of an open immigration type of person. But if you're an originalist, you have to believe that there's no gray area. And 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 Durbin asked to Kavanaugh, do you agree with that? And he's like, no, 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 I don't. I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> isn't that a problem, Derek? Yeah, well, I mean, what, so one of the interesting things to think about, too, is um, when you think about, I mean, you know, legal movements, um, they sometimes they are born of of a particular era and they take a long period of time to sort of work through. I think about a couple of things. Right. So, um, you know, back 50 years ago, conservatives were playing a game known as judicial restraint. Right. And that was that was the language that people would have used. And judicial restraint was a notion of, well, judges are not supposed to be making lots of these decisions. Judges are supposed to be doing less. Judges are right because it was judicial activism was the concern. And that gave way in the 80s to a version of originalism, uh, original intent or something we later use terms like strict constructionists. Um, Some of these phrases sound so dated. They they don't speak to the Um, times we live in. Yeah, in terms of like adhering to these principles. And nowadays, again, the, the, the movement is much more about sort of original uh, public meaning of the Constitution and textualism, not literalism, right, are the phrases we use. At the same time, undoubtedly, right, some of the way that these judges behave, they, they were raised in an era of the 70s and 80s if they were conservatives. And so language like restraint or language like, um, you know, well, we shouldn't sort of revisit some of these old precedents is, is deeply influential for many of them. And so while, while we as conservatives are frustrated, I think, today, or some conservatives, I should say, maybe not all, <laughs> but so while some conservatives they can be frustrated that what, why aren't the courts sort of returning to uh, the, the text of the Constitution, to its meaning, to its as originally understood, this is the document, this is the law that governs us. You know, at the time in the 70s, we would have given anything to just sort of stand athwart shouting stop, right? That stop, stop doing the kinds of things that the court in the yep. 60s was doing. That's Stopping all and holding firm was enough. Yeah. So I think this is also like a tension of realizing that conservatism has, not entirely, but in many respects, done a very good job of moving away from that 60s mentality into, at the very least, in some respects, um, holding firm. The question is like what, where it goes next and how do we get judges who are thinking about the next stage and not just, hey, we're no worse off than we were in the 70s, right? <laughs> like, what, what, what does that next stage look like? Well, my, my problem is I, if you look just at the era where we resolved as a movement to stop this, like we're not you know, making these mistakes anymore. We're going to have better judges. I mean, if you just look at the, since the Bush era, I mean, I would die to go back to 2005 level of jurisprudence. I mean, the amount of transformation that has occurred yeah. under the watch of this conservative movement, legal movement, Obergefell, Bostock, Roper, I mean, foundational principles. Let me, and, and I think what bothers me that a lot of my colleagues I think are missing is the lower courts. The, the, the left-wing judges on the lower courts have no bounds. What do you think Obergefell started out as? A breach of, what's that case? It was a Minnesota case in the 70s. Um, it was a yes, nine to nothing opinion against right. gay marriage, right? Nine to yes. nothing opinion. I mean, like they have no qualms. Everything they do in itself is a vi- roper. All that stuff is a violation of stereo decisis. So you can't have this one way street. And then 
But 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 forget about it. So they're not going to overturn things from two years ago. They're not going to overturn a Heller stat, in my opinion. Right. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but I I don't think they'll ever really overturn Heller stat. Um. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just not. So I mean, this notion Rowan Casey that's nonsense. They're not going to overturn Heller stat. But but let's go back. My problem is I would take yes for an answer if we would staunch the new bad stuff. But every year, under the watch of this much-vaunted conservative Supreme Court, you have lower courts dest- demolishing red states on, you know, whether it's work requirements for Medicaid, whether it's encamp- you know, taking care of the encampments of the homeless in, in Boise, Idaho, whether it's paying for transgender, you know, surgeries in the prisons in Idaho. I could go on and on. And the Supreme Court allows that to stand, right? So they they bless the um, most earth-shattering, novel transformation of the Constitution, and there's always excuses for it. And I'm like, so wait, where are those originalist judges again? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. There, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle. I remember it was uh, several weeks ago where um, Leonard Leo, the chairman of the co-chairman of the Federal Society, say something along the lines of saying, I, I don't think any religious conservatives, uh, even specifically calling out religious conservatives, would trade the Supreme Court of today for the Supreme Court of 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and Senator Josh Hawley came out and said, you know, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm actually a little bit shocked about how the Supreme Court has gone. I think you're right. right? I if would. you think about issues about a- abortion or sexual orientation and marriage yep. or, or even religious liberty, pornography, I think there's a lot of ways in which the courts, the, the court's jurisprudence of 40 years ago looks a whole lot better. G- G- Gorsuch is, is to the left of of. Um... Of any demo of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she started out. And and again, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to throw out everything about Gorsuch, but I'm just saying Bostock is a big freaking deal. I can't ignore that. I mean, look, Derek, you've seen this just in the ensuing months. Um, Alito said there will be like 10 different ramifications of it. He listed them. It's almost like every single one that he predicted was checked off in the lower courts now. And it's like, I at some point, like, dude, we're not winning this. And it's like, so with that said, with that said, could you take us through the names that you're hearing? Um, you know, obviously Amy Barrett, um, the one from Florida, uh, Lagoa, and maybe uh, um, what's her name? Allison Rushford from North Carolina. Any others? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a Clarence Thomas? And, and, and when, I, when I say Clarence Thomas, you know what I mean. I mean that someone that is an originalist in the sense that they are looking at 1789 or statutorily when the statute was written and they don't give a darn about politics. Because what I think a lot of our people miss is that there's a lot of very terrific conservative legal minds. And in yeah. a lecture hall, they're like, dude, the 14th Amendment doesn't mean this. Dude, like, like we know it doesn't mean this. They, they, they laugh. <laughs> they snicker at it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the left has enmeshed most of their jurisprudence in some form of racial or identity politics. Right? That is a reality. And the same way political Republicans tend to not have the guts to pull the trigger on what they campaign on, these guys, even though they don't stand for election, but the social pressure – if they feel it's a certain way, 
they're going to either not roll that way or they're going to table it with the shadow docket and, you know, not take up those bad cases from the lower courts. Then, you know, play that game. <laughs> and yeah. basically, like, Clarence Thomas will take a look, and he writes this all the time with civil rights cases. He will say, I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the order of 60 years of our Civil Rights Act jurisprudence are built upon a legal fiction, right? He's said that several times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you see people who are in, in the in the hopper that would do that? So yeah, that's a, that's very hard. Right? <laughs> it's very hard to think about it in that respect because I think. Well, I mean, one is, I mean, there are people who definitely care about these first principles and care about this stuff. But again, until they get on the Supreme Court and they're confronted with it, I just don't know like what that looks yeah. like, like what what it looks like when you get in the hopper. Now, let me start with. Uh, so so I, I am a big fan of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. She was my evidence professor at wow. Notre Dame Law School. Uh, I, I have, uh, you know, she's been a mentor Sell me to on me her right I, now. Sell me in her audience. <laughs> That's your job I today. Mean, yeah. Well, I mean, so if, if, if you've got several hours, you know, I would sit down and go back and, and read a lot of the articles that she has written about stare decisis, because I, I, I think it's it's fair to say the bulk of her scholarly career was built on thinking about and looking at stare decisis mm. and it, it, in an intelligent way to say, listen, we care in some respects about what courts have said before. But she looks and says, look, there are actually unforeseen consequences when we adhere to stare decisis. She wrote one article to talk about how so when you decide a case between a plaintiff and a defendant and then you give that case stare decisis effect, what happens when the next party shows up and says, hey, I have an argument. You say, too bad, so sad. We've uh, already decided that with somebody else. You say, I wasn't in the courtroom for that. I wasn't even in the room. I shouldn't be bound by that decision. right? And we should think more holistically about how precedents can affect non-parties in other cases or other ways she looks and says, listen, maybe sometimes when lower courts are interpreting statutes in cases where the Supreme Court hasn't spoken, we shouldn't just reflexively do what the Supreme Court says. And we mm. need to be more careful and precise in terms of thinking about the scope of Supreme Court precedent. And that Supreme Court precedent might be narrower uh, in some ways if we're careful about how we approach it. And, and again, as she clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia, um, in which she wrote a tribute uh, to, to about his work, she said, listen, one thing that he was able to do while he was not sort of Clarence Thomas on precedent, so that, that originalists like Justice Scalia uh, adhered to precedents, they just often avoided direct challenges to them and looked at sort of other cases and revisited the more appropriate ones that would be better challenges and sort of new and undefined areas and channeling effort and attention in that way. So she's had, I think, a lot of thoughtful and important ways. Again, so, so I, I, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas has made it pretty clear that um, he, he, he doesn't give a fig much for, for precedent. And I don't know how many of those are on the courts, to be honest. But there's no question that someone like Judge Barrett takes seriously precedent and seriously not in the sense of, oh, it's unreflectively the kind of thing that we need to adhere to all the time. Seriously in the sense of we need to look and think very carefully and hard about what this precedent is doing before we proceed and look at these other cases. And she has written separately and dissented in, in Second Amendment cases in the Seventh Circuit and other kinds of things to sort of indicate her willingness to, to, to reconsider issues and to think carefully about them. 
when when you look at the death penalty issues for devout Catholics, so obviously Thomas and Scalia and Alito are devout Catholics, were devout Catholics, and you know they have clearly clearly separated out their you know the views of the Catholic Church with what they believe is obviously in our constitution and very much constitutional a tradition of America to have the death penalty. And um, certainly they've always upheld the death penalty very strongly. Do you see Amy Barrett going in the same direction? So, I mean, I, I, again, I I look at her record on the seventh circuit. So there's a case called Schmidt versus Foster where there was a, a panel of the seventh circuit granted a federal habeas petition um, when, uh, the, uh, about the, uh, because the state trial judge had questioned the defendant about his defense and saying, oh, this was an inappropriate decision. They said the judge shouldn't have never asked this, this, this question of the defendant at a critical stage of the proceedings. Um, and it was unreasonably applied and so on. And Barrett dissented saying, listen, Congress says we're only supposed to adhere to these cases in narrow positions like the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 severely limits the role of federal judges in reviewing these habeas petitions. We shouldn't be giving this defendant a new trial. So she dissented from that. And not only dissented, but the Seventh Circuit takes notice, <laughs> grants an en banc hearing, and then effectively reverses the decision relying upon Barrett's opinion. So I think there's no question that she views her role as a judge as like, she's not the one instituting the death penalty. <laughs> she is reviewing sort of legal frameworks of how how the law is applied. And that is something perfectly faithful, that, that, that perfectly faithful Catholics can do and adhere to without difficulty. And so I think her record on the Seventh Circuit demonstrates uh, that she doesn't have some sort of anti-death penalty bias or anything like that. She's going to adhere to what the legal precedents, uh, not just the legal precedents, but what the statutory mandates from Congress about the death penalty are. So I want to move on to the next issue that's been raised by some, you know, on the internet. And I am not prepared to talk about this. I mentioned it earlier (laughs) just because I haven't read the opinion carefully and I don't have it in front of me. But the biggest issue that we're dealing with from a legal standpoint in terms of the consequences to our lives is coronavirus. I mean, it's funny, you know, we typically think of, okay, Roe v. Wade and, you know, you got Obergefell and then you got election law, you got all these things. Um, but the biggest issue that affects our lives is is, is state powers and, and the extent of state powers to do, you know, cross-state travel bans, to do shelter-in-place orders, masking, um, and things like that. Now, as a baseline, you know I am very much issues that affect the whole of the people should be dealt with in a political framework. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe in this striking down. But it doesn't mean I don't believe that if you have an individualized grievance for a negative locomotion, as T- Clarence Thomas talks about, you're you're walking <laughs> in locomotion, they're putting a positive on my negative. You must get a vaccine. You must put a mask on your face. You cannot live and earn a living unless government just gives you welfare or something, right? Unless I say so, um, you cannot open your church. I mean, these are real, you know, 
you, you know, you know usually right. we, let, let's face it, Derek, we're usually not dealing with real fundamental rights in the courts. I mean, they're kind of <laughs> like, you know, oh, my rights are violated. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of it, but I mean, this was really we've never experienced anything like this since the settlement of our continent, not this widespread, prolonged, unlimited, arbitrary. And my view doesn't change that. I don't think the courts decide it with finality. And I do think if the other branches do disagree, there are many ways that they could kind of push back against it. Um, I don't think, you know, um, that, that, uh, that the courts have the final say. I'm not being inconsistent. But I do think if you are a judge, if I were a judge, even my view of a modest judiciary and an individual, not not some sort of like third party bogus plaintiff type of thing, you know how that works. I'm striking down a policy, but look, I'm giving you judgment. You could open your business. Um, you have the right to open your business. You have the right to walk freely and breathe air, at least in certain circumstances. Um, I I am very concerned about that, and I and I believe the courts need to be one avenue to redress those grievances. Ultimately, we do need to address this in the electoral process. And a case came before the Seventh Circuit um, addressing Judge Pr- uh, Governor Pritzker's shelter-in-place orders, I think the capacity limits, the, the typical stuff. And it was the opinion was unanimous. Uh, two Trump appointees, including Amy Barrett, but it was written by very liberal Diane Wood, the Seventh Circuit, former chief judge. Now, I know some conservatives probably rubbed the wrong way because the opinion was a little obnoxious because the, the just the rhetoric it was written by Dan Wood and very much like into like, yeah, this is like this. Yeah, this is the only thing they have to do very much showing that she believes that these measures are needed and actually actually effectual, which is really a point in contention. But she, Amy Barrett signed on to it. Um, and a lot of conservatives are very upset about that because it really indulges Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which John Roberts used in the California church case, um, uh, mandatory vaccines, which really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Do you know about that case or do you have any um, opinion on it? And because I don't know enough about the case to get excited about it. But I do know this, Derek. If we are going to have the eminent tribunal, okay, the Council of Revision, the striking down body, the super legislature, if this is where we're headed, then I sure as heck want the courts to strike down stuff where they actually go after life, liberty, and property. Yes. Well, I think so. Yeah, you have. you have a handful of, of challenges, right? What are you supposed to do in that case when you are a, again, th- th- this is the stare decisis point, right? How do you handle lower courts in the chain uh, up against the Supreme Court, right? So you can just sort of like uh, kick up your heels and issue decisions all the time that you hope the, the Supreme Court will reverse. And that was the uh, Justice Stephen Reinhardt model in the Ninth Circuit, right? Uh, just do whatever the heck we want and hope that like uh, no one's going to decide otherwise. Um, and, and sometimes the alternative is these questions are often deeply political in nature. We yep. kind of wait and see and like, 
it really sucks that you've got Pritzker as your governor in Illinois. Right? <laughs> like you sure. wish you had router. You wish you had a Republican at that point in time, or someone, or a legislature that was willing to hold your governor in check at that moment. So, um, so again, I, I, I honestly have not looked at this particular opinion in this case. Um, I found Robert's opinions in the Supreme Court uh, on the religious ca- challenges cases very frustrating because, um, again, these were, you know, when, when conservatives are bringing these challenges before the Supreme Court, they're not bringing anything right They're They're finding that they're waiting for cases they think are the most egregious. Right. These these cases in California yeah. or, or places where it's some liquor store gets to be open indefinitely, but your church can't. Right. They're, they're finding the egregious ones. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're willing to play by the rules for the most part, but try to find some of these other ones that, 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 that we look at. Um, so I think. So so not knowing, again, the specifics of Illinois, knowing that there are so many sort of political judgments that happen in a lot of these cases, it is it is frustrating, I think, that the political branches have been so unwilling and unable to accommodate um, sort of basic human dignity in a lot of these cases. Um, Because I I just find it very I I'm I'm really frustrated. I'm just and and I'm not um criticizing judge barrett because there's too much unknown like like you said there's jacobson itself then there's kind of roberts using jacobson already whether we like it or not i mean alito was the dissent so i mean you know roberts was the majority and he is indulging jacobson for this which i do believe is even if you believe in jacobson i i think it's a stretch just because you know, is a, is a unique circumstance, a very clearly effective smallpox vaccine versus some of these voodoo rain dance, sun dance uh, <laughs> rituals that some of these states are doing that, you know, maybe in March it's OK, but six months later, we're not really seeing it making a difference. And my concern is that this issue is not even being asked by some of the conservative FedSoc people that are going to be meeting with these people, whether it's Barrett or someone else. And again, I am fine to shake hands on saying, look. You know, if if you're going to take that same hands off approach with criminal law, with illegal immigration, with election law, then then fine. But no, these guys, they get an injunction in three seconds. I mean, it's 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 astounding. You're seeing they're winning every single case. Now they could even vote after the election. Not only could they override the states, I guess you could override the feds and Congress's power to set the date of a federal election. Now the federal election is November 9th de facto in Wisconsin. I mean, anything they want, they get. But then somehow when when indefinitely you're working off of arbitrary executive power, not for a day, a week or two weeks, but six months and clearly they're calling it a new normal. Very draconian and it's like well there's not not, nothing much we can do for you and i'm like well you know again my view is to shake hands on and end the concept of judicial supremacism but if we're (laughs) if we're not going to do that and we're all going to agree i want to get my judge on well yeah you know i i want a judge to take a meat cleaver to some of this stuff i mean you know not do it politically but but at least where it clearly does violate the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th amendment as, as, as thomas understands it And my concern is there's no effort to even it's almost like we have a fire, Derek. We have a fire everywhere. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we need a firefighter. We need a firefighter. And we didn't even get it as an opinion on the on the fire. Like, yes, we got our guy. And we're like, you know, put him on our shoulders. Like, 
Like the the guy has a great life story. He saved a kitty cat, uh, you know, caught on a <laughs> on a ledge somewhere, and like is a devout, you know, Catholic. And 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 and, and I, I like that. To me, the more religious, the better. I mean, I'm not making fun out of it. I'm just saying, sure, like, right. do we even know where they are on the issues that matter to us? Yeah. Pinhead. Well, again, I think this. I, I think this is exactly. I mean, you want people with lengthy records, right? And I think you have to just say to the republic look like i think it used to be well we need if it's democrats in control of the senate republicans needed to make sure they had democrats on board when it's republicans in control we have control we have to make sure that we make susan collins and lisa murkowski and other folks happy but i think i think to the extent especially if those two are not voting on this judicial nominee right you want to find people who have a track record and a paper trail and who have recorded statements and who have written separately and extensively on a number of issues. Like Judge Ho. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now, again, not every judge is going to write separately in every case. Not every judge thinks it's prudential to do so. Not every judge thinks like, right, sometimes the the, the posture of the case has its own wrinkles or problems with it, right? I mean, there's there's a thousand sort of things. And I'm not criticizing Judge Barrett or or the other ones for not being like Judge Ho and his, you know, (laughs) modus operandi there. I'm just saying if they're not like him or like um, William Pryor, who, you know, has a paper trail of saying Roe is an abomination, it's just like, it's not a rip on them and, and they could be a Clarence Thomas. It's just that we don't know. And I think it's funny you say that because, right, we didn't know Clarence Thomas was going to be a Clarence Thomas. We didn't know it. We didn't know Scalia would be as good as he was. <laughs> and, a, and that's the true. The one paper trail we felt fortunate about. But you know what? You know what, Muller, Derek? We, we got we got two out of 13. So, yeah, we lucked out. We got two out of 13. You could throw in Rehnquist and Alito. That's four maybe if you want to go to the yeah. next tier. But that's four out of the last 13 GOP appointees since Nixon, Nixon, and again, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm no longer worried about a suitor, but the arc of the litigation that we're dealing with and the body politic being moved so far to the left, that's a straw man. Yeah, well, we, we already yeah. died from that. I don't want another Roberts, and frankly, I don't want another Kavanaugh Gorsuch on a lot of issues. I want something as a baseline to be an Alito and, and really more like a Thomas, and I want to get your thought on this to kind of drive home this point. Um, why it's more political than legal. I'm making a political point. And I think I have yeah. the right to make a, 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 a political <laughs> point because I think I have the most intellectually honest position. My position is this. If you haven't heard it, I'm just going to say it. My audience has heard it, but it, it's worth repeating. <laughs> I think that you know the time to cut a deal with the left on a grand bargain is when you have a position of strength. And now they do because the perception is they're going to get a majority. Republicans are going to get a majority, you know, if, and then if Trump wins, you got, um, you know, Sotomayor, I'm hearing is sick. Um, may, may she be well. And I, you know, wish her well, uh, hopefully it's not <clears throat> nothing serious, but hearing that, um, Breyer is certainly, you know, getting up there in years. If you're a Democrat, if you look at this conventionally, you'd be shaking in your boots, um, now, I have reason to believe I, I if I were them, they, they've rigged the system and Republicans go along with it and whatever. But, you know, <laughs> the perception is Republicans are going to get a majority. Yeah. Now is the time to say to them, I'll cut you a deal, Chuck. Chuck Schumer, you could appoint anyone you want, but we're ending judicial supremacism. In other words, like Lincoln said, <laughs> you could you could render an opinion on it in that case. 
But if it is something that is trying to establish a national principle that a man is a woman, a marriage is like this, um, election law is like this, um, a citizen is an alien as a citizen, that's nice, but just know it's an exec- executive function to run elections. It's an executive function to issue visas. It's an executive function to um, issue marriage licenses. And, you know, we're, we're going to have a fight over this. I mean, you know, so you could have that and you could do it to our opinions too, whether it's like, you know, um, labor union type of uh, opinions and, you know, you could you could push back or or corona restrictions and and we have decompartmentalism. My view is decompartmentalism yeah. that yeah. ultimately is the constitution. But if we have a disagreement, you can't have Kim Jong Un uh, degree of finality <laughs> with the unelected branch. Really, not any branch, but certainly the unelected branch. But nobody wants to do what I'm doing. Well, so, no, I, yeah. so, I, I, you you probably don't read the New York Times every morning, but let me tell you. I mean, this morning, uh, Jamel Bowie, who is no conservative, right? His column is entitled "Down with Judicial Supremacy." Wow, and the whole whole argument is and I'm starting to see this crop up in a number of areas. Now, you and I know, right, that that like I don't think our left of center friends have thought this through. Right? <laughs> I mean, for, for you and me, we recognize like it has been the judiciary that has been the one that has been driving a lot of the leftward discussion in politics for centuries. Our right. Trade Citizens ones- United. Yeah. For 50 million things they've done, you know, yes, and, like, right. and, and like even the stuff we got, like it, could the lower courts screw with it. Like Heller is gone. So Heller, you yeah. could say we've been, yeah. that's gone. Um, no, I, and I, I, I completely agree. Shelby so County is, I mean, is gone, you know, with the uh, the um, Voter Rights Act. You know, the, 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 they're screwing with elections even more than they did before Shelby <laughs> County because Kennedy invited them to do so in the opinion. Right, right. Yeah. So it's it, it, like I, I don't think people have really thought through about what that looks like. Right. Because what it does is it invites the political branches. And let's face it. I mean, right now, what are the political branches? It's 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 Republicans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The House is Democratic, but they, they're they're ineffective at this moment. Right. So it's it, it's a notion that if the political branches are going to dominate and indeed, like a lot of the litigation this year has been specifically attacking President Trump's political judgments in matters ranging from immigration to the census. Right? The so Washington I, I Post ever... had a list, and this was two years ago, of over 50 cases. And these are big, big. I mean, I'm talking about drilling and energy and environment and immigration. And I mean, like for all the talk, I mean, you're, you have these insane, I mean, the census really insane. I'm not trying to say politically, but I mean, anyone who is intellectually understanding of the law and the constitution, very novel lower court opinions. Um, this is not, you know, praising Trump or bashing Trump. Um, you know, the, the things that most of what he's done that they've put in court is just, you know, whether you like it or not, he had the power to do it. In fact, a lot of cases, it was undoing executive power of his predecessor. And there was a judge in Alaska that literally said that Obama meant for this to be permanent. Trump can't do it without the legend, without Congress undoing it. It was like, it literally made no sense. And, you know, I'm like, my colleagues are dumb in my view because they wouldn't take this. They're like, what do you mean? We're, we're on the cusp to the promised land of, <laughs> of having a seven to two majority eventually in the Supreme Court. I, I, I love this game. And I'm like, eh, it's not going to work out the way I would take the deal. But nonetheless, yeah. nonetheless, they're not taking the deal. And they're like, we need to play their game. 
we need to get our guy. So, so I'm like, fine, I want to get a guy that's going to do what we do. Here's why I think we don't get it. Okay, we don't get it because of politics. It's all politics. It's, it's their, Clarence Thomas is the only one who doesn't give a darn. I'm going to read to you a case that I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Flowers v. Mississippi. It was one of the many growing recent cases where they're undoing capital convictions. For the 10th time, they've gone through all sorts of things, absurd rights to jury the jury pools, so jury selection, the jury was racist. This case, they really loaded up with racial innuendo. Like, they really made it like you're the KKK if you don't side with flowers. And you'll really get a kick out of this if you're not familiar with it. Because, you know, Justice Alito, if anything, is actually generally a, even a bigger hawk siding against criminal defendant, defendants than Clarence Thomas is. I mean, it, right? Did, did I get that right? Right, right. He, he yeah, is probably, right. yeah, the most... Um, you know, for, you know, pretty much most things states are doing against a criminal is is justified under the Constitution. And, you know, he's very, very reluctant to reverse that. But this was a seven to two opinion. Surprisingly, Gorsuch was with Thomas in, in the dissent. Alito wrote a two page concurrence. And he basically just said. That. But this is not an ordinary case, and the jury selection process cannot be analyzed as if it were. In light of all that has gone before, it was risky for the case to be tried once again by the same prosecutor, yada, yada. You read through it, and it's basically like, this is too racial. I'm just scared of it. I mean, and, and he is strong on that issue. I And then this is my reading of him. I think he agrees with Thomas that legally there's no rationale. He was just scared of it. Even he was scared of it. Thomas wasn't scared of it. And you get what I'm trying to say. I I think too many of us are looking at this mechanically. We're looking at something that is political in a legal lens. And we always, we're not like the left. We're intellectually honest. Well, I think I'm I'm very intellectually honest because I don't think, I don't believe in judicial supremacism. But if you are going to play that game, if you are going to tell me that my society, my life is permanently fixed with during the course of ordinary litigation, as Lincoln said as at his inaugural address, by an opinion, and the left gets their guys and they know where they are. I want someone that if if it's not public, I want Trump and Leonard Leo and whoever's up there, the people like McGinn, oh, and he's not there anywhere, but those type of people to get those private commitments. And I think we have the right to have those commitments if this is going to be the construct of the judiciary. Well, let me say, so, I mean, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Judge Barrett, but, you know, I, I also want to mention Judge Legault, who I don't know very well, but on this very point, at least to the extent those two are the front runners, as far as I've seen, you know, Judge Barrett, um, you know, her, her time in D.C. was was primarily, although not exclusively, limited to clerking for Justice Scalia, right? Much of the rest of her careers in New Orleans and in Indiana, right? Judge Legault, yeah, she went to school at Columbia, but uh, you know, has spent most of her career in state courts in Florida. You know, these are not Harvard, Yale. They are not D.C. Beltway. They are not D.C. Circuit, Georgetown prep. I mean, it's insane to me that we have two judges who went to the same high school. Right. I mean, like 
there is this sort of insular market. And I do think, you know, a lot of the phenomenon that you've described about the political will are, are, are people who have been shaped a lot by that sort of D.C. That DC sort of worldview. And I think uh, this is my armchair punditry for the moment, right? But I think the more we can bring judges like Alito, like Thomas, like those who come from other parts of the country who have spent their lives in the real world <laughs> outside of the Beltway, I think – uh, to the and again, we want them to write separately. We want them to have a paper trail, those kinds of things. But they also come in, I think, less susceptible to yep. sort of the honeyed persuasions of like, oh, well, this is just how DC works, yeah. and there's a lot of back scratching and stuff. So that that is at least to the extent that that those are the candidates we're looking at, or even folks like Rushing or Grant or Thapar, whoever else it might be. Um, it, it, it feels like this is also a real opportunity for, for an outsider to come in and provide that that kind of much needed sort of outsider perspective. It, it's like it reminds me of um, one of the greatest Scalia opinions. And what was the case of Virginia um, Military Institute, um, the forcing of co-ed um, training? Was it like 1996 around then? Thomas obviously had to recuse because his son was there. And like that was like. I mean, people forget some of Scalia's culture war opinions. Like it, it, the the end of the end of that opinion is just unbelievable. Nobody would write that now. I mean, and that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, Thomas would, yeah. but 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 I mean, like even Alito, Alito would not write that. Um, and and it's like I, I think that's what you're kind of driving it. That like a Kavanaugh was a creature of D.C. and you're seeing it in these like kind of funky concurrences that he gives like i don't have a problem with them but they're often they're kind of like gratuitous and it's like yeah this isn't well in line with our person this is like great like you know we we respect like like and he gets it right but that does scare me in the future that if if he winds up because a lot of people are saying okay daniel roberts is the skunk at the party but come on now you get this then we're gonna get we're gonna get our votes we're gonna get our votes we're gonna get our people But my problem is, but then another guy becomes the fifth vote. Isn't this what has always happened? <laughs> yeah. That it's yeah. it's not a matter that, oh, they're originalists. I, I, I think, and I don't know if you disagree with me, but I think Roberts, too, is at heart the man he was in the Reagan administration. By the way, when he wrote the memo on jurisdiction stripping, you know, which he would <laughs> yeah, disown yeah. now. But, you know, it was yeah. like 1981 or 82 or something. He was a young lawyer there, and he, you know... It, but it's it's political. I mean, they're scared. They become creatures of Washington. This is how you do things. And that's, that's I think, the point you're making that Amy Barrett, at least we have that confidence for Notre Dame. She's very much outside. Um, and I, I definitely like that. I find that promising. Um, that, that, that does give us a little bit more confidence. They're not going to play this, you know, just insular game of just like there's certain outcomes you just can't have you can't look like you're anti-woman or anti-this or anti-that um which you know as well as anyone it absolutely plays into their um opinion it just does i mean you know we could say they don't stand for election all we want but they're they're just too scared we we see that so you have a favorable view um do you have anything else on lagoa or rushing no, I mean, so I, I knew uh, Allison Rushing a little bit uh, in during law school, even though it's in different law schools. Um, we had run in some of the same circles, and I know her, like, again, just a little bit to, to be sort of a solid 
decent person, <laughs> right? But again, like that's some of these some of these things only get you so far. I've heard from people who know Judge Lagoa in the same way, solid, decent person. Um, you know, I, I feel I, I would feel more confident about Barrett only because I know her more. Right? Sure. Um, and, and I feel like she has written a lot more than most of these other judges. And to that degree, I think, you know, again, when we're looking at paper trails, we feel confident. But um, again, I, I, I think I want to return to your sort of bigger <laughs> point earlier, which is if you're if if we're just riding everything on the judiciary, we're doing it wrong, right? Yeah. And I mean, that, that's what I feel like the strategy has been like for the last 40 years. And that's not to deny the importance of the judiciary, but it's got to be it's got to be something more than that. At this exactly. Stage. Well, Republicans love it because it absolves <laughs> them of any fight. It's like, oh, no, look, see, see, we're, we're appointing judges, which is why they don't they're not careful to get it right. You know, because they just want the status of, oh, I appointed a judge and then like throw it on them. And look, we're way over time. And I really appreciate you spending all this time. <laughs> well, I, I will say it's it's a little like the old Rockefeller quote about how much money you need. It's always a little bit more. And at this point for Republicans, it's always like, well, how many justices on the Supreme Court? Oh, you just you just need one or two more. It's, it's like, like drinking coffee with mantra. a fork. And, and there's a reason why we're always <laughs> one vote away, because, oh, they don't have the guts. I mean, but but yeah, but with yeah. that, I want to. um. I want to see if you could temper a little bit of my pessimism about the following. <laughs> Maybe you can't, but if you could, I'd, I'd appreciate it. If you could tell our audience mechanically some of the ways that let, let, let's say you get an Amy Barrett on the court on, on, on the, on the Supreme court. Um, so one of the problems we're having now that I alluded to earlier and we talk about a lot, we message each other. I know a lot on, on Twitter. We talk about this, that the lower courts are just utterly insane. Um, I mean, the stuff that that is emanating from them, the the cases that they are indulging are shocking. And they're like, no, you're not going to give oral arguments that, and they do. And then, well, you're not going to rule, in, you know, in, in their favor, and they do. And then, you know, the appellate court up, upholds it, and, and and several courts of appeals. And you're like, well, the Supreme Court. I mean, they're they're not going to let this. I mean, you, you just you can't do this. <laughs> so one of the things that bother me is that everyone thinks like, look, you get Amy Barrett on the court. Come on, I mean, you got. Barrett, you got Alito, you got Thomas. So it's like a three, and then come on, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, even if you did a couple of things you might not like. But I mean, that that that's straight up, even if you write off Roberts completely, you got your five votes. But what scares me about that false sense of security is you're you're very familiar with election law. You teach election law. We are finding now in this election, but it's really every election season, that Anything the left wants to do that fits directly into their political posturing with the Soros-funded groups, with the ballot harvesting and all the shtick they pull to, to win elections, they get whatever they want. They're winning every single election case. We just had in Wisconsin yesterday where a judge basically ruled – basically is saying the election in Wisconsin is not going to end till November 9th because as long as it's postmarked for November 3rd, um, it has to be accepted through November 9th. Um, every deadline is being blown through, you know, states are being denuded. So states could like put a muzzle on your mouth, gag you, shut your church, shut your business. <laughs> There's nothing a state can't do with Corona, but suddenly like when it comes to the things that, that, that article one actually gives them the powers to do, um, and only Congress could screw with them, not the federal courts, like the federal courts control it. But where is the, so my, so my, so just to finish up, my concern is that 
everyone assumes, okay, Daniel, yeah, but the Supreme Court's gonna gonna deal with that. But these are timely things that affect the outcome of of imminent elections. And I have right. seen it time and again where districts have been drawn, campaigns have been done in red states based on things that state Supreme Courts in North Carolina upheld, and the lower courts ultimately wound up achieving their outcome illegitimately. Do you see this nomination helping that? Uh, yeah, so no, I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to solve that problem, at least at this moment. Um, I Why mean, not? There, are, there are hundreds of district court judges throughout the country. And all you need is one, especially now with a nationwide injunction, all you need one <laughs> to sort of show up and make a decision. And, then, and the, now, to be fair, some of them are only doing statewide injunctions, yeah, right? Yeah. But but uh, and sometimes it's state court judges. That was the Michigan decision, a Michigan state court judge extending yes. uh, the, the ballot, the, the, the deadline to accept the ballots from Election Day to 14 days after Election Day, which is which is wild in my view. <laughs> um, and and a lot of these there's just so much money sloshing around out there to fund lawyers to litigate these issues there is an existing test in front of the Supreme Court, a longstanding test called the Anderson balancing test from a case called Anderson versus Celebrisi in 1983, which which traces back to some older cases and has been carried forward into, into other cases. But it basically invites courts to sort of make a balancing test when it comes to voting rights cases and election rules and decide, like, how big is the burden and what's the state's interest? And judge, you, you kind of get to make the judgment call. And courts are doing that in spades. In this election. And it's not anything that the election officials are doing, right? Their laws have been the same, but but the, the courts are coming in and they're just making judgment calls to say, you know what, the pandemic makes it really hard to get a signature. The pandemic's just making it hard for you to, to request an absentee ballot. The pandemic's just making it hard for you to get your signature in. And, and they're just kind of changing all the rules as they go along. And these are, this is happening all over the place. And it's Sometimes the litigants don't appeal because they don't have the time or they don't yeah. have the money to do it or they, they don't want to waste their time dealing with it or they think it's just too much effort or they, they don't want the negative press that comes with defending a, a different rule when it goes up on appeal. So it's, it's, it is a tremendous sea change that's happening this election in, in destabilization of our election rules. And I mean, we're seeing the consequences already. There have been these movements to expand early voting opportunities, which again, legislatures have been doing it. It's a political judgment. But every time you do it and more people vote early, they make more mistakes. They make because voting by mail results in more mistakes because you're sitting at home doing it rather than an election official helping you with it. Or you've got more steps about putting it in the right envelope or putting the right signature in the right place. And these ballots are getting rejected at a higher rate. And so it's this bizarre, in my view, it's, it's this weird, I don't even understand the, the political valence in some of these cases where people want more early voting. Why? So that you can, you can have more ballots rejected. But yeah, it's happening all over the country. It is a sea change of election rules that are, it's two or three decisions a day seemingly coming out, changing the rules of election. And, and that's what scares me. And and it's something that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. I come to a friend, they're like, no, right. Daniel, <laughs> Daniel, like, come on, this is a six to three majority. And like, I don't have a response to that that fits on a bumper sticker. But if you watch the arc of the trajectory of 
the litigants, the 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 army that they have versus like we can't even have three people conjured together when we have our entire country shut down to put a lawsuit against it. And they have for every criminal, every illegal alien, every election law, they got it. And like and then every judge they want, they get it. They get it. They get it. Um, They only have to win once. They have first and goal and an unlimited tries. and, And we all we have to win every time. That's just the way it works. And like, I've watched this for so many years and like, even under a conservative Supreme Court, it's like, let's take immigration. I cannot tell you the number of illegitimate things, things to this day that ICE feels restricted from doing, from getting rid of the worst MS-13, child sex offenders, criminal aliens with, I mean, just slam dunk cases because of circuit rulings let's say from the ninth in particular that absolutely is in conflict with statute the constitution and all of supreme court precedent like all of like the bail cases you had like 50 million of them coming out of california it takes about four years i noted i i I noticed and 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 we win we usually win them but four years worth of criminal aliens irrevocable consequences disappearing into the population they're let go and then you know what happens when they're done they start all over again with a slightly different case see another imbalance i've noted i once wrote a thesis 11 reasons why the judiciary is irremediably broken and and it was to push back against this notion of just appoint conservative judges play the same haunted house game the left created but just appoint better judges and one of the points i made is that so part of the problem is with the lower courts, I want to get your take on this thought process. So you look at the lower courts and the left does what you and I kind of believe in, but for the wrong reason. Like they're like, yeah, like Lincoln, like Lincoln said, you have a, an opinion. You can own John Doe could own some sort of gun in some sort of place in Chicago or <laughs> um, or D.C., But even though if you read the opinion, it clearly is much broader than that, but they'll screw with every last other thing. So the lower courts have no problem basically confining that Supreme Court decision to nothingness. Whereas our guys, if you have a Supreme Court issue, like let's just, for lack of a better term, call it a left-wing political outcome opinion, like they won't stand 50 feet from that. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's over. Okay, like- Marriage. Oh, marriage is redefined. Yes. For all time. Yes. Everywhere, every place, every, no one tries to push back. Well, maybe these circumstances, that like done, like gone. No one's going to indulge pre-Obergerfell in any way. No one's going to indulge pre-Bostock, pre-Roe. Like, how do we ever win such an imbalance? But no one believes me when I say we're not winning the judiciary. Well, Daniel, how do you believe that? Trump appointed all these judges and the Supreme Court and lower courts. But isn't it true? I want to end with this. You clerked for a circuit judge, um, uh, Grunder, Raymond Grunder. Yes. So I would agree. I mean, I think it's in my view, it's actually really surprising that there's not more high impact litigation happening out of the seven states that uh, that are a part of the eighth circuit right um in my view it is a it has a a, a variety of judges um but who all take sort of this uh, 
virtually all take a pretty consistent and thoughtful view to um, handling legal precedent, but a fidelity to the Constitution. And it, it's Judge Grunder, it's Judge Colleton, it's Judge Judge Strauss. I, there, there's a number of others on the on the court who are all very good, very solid, who think carefully about how they're supposed to approach these issues. And in my mind, it's it's well, again, I'm partial to Judge Grunder. You know, it's <laughs> devastating that he's not on the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it's it's yeah, but it, it, it's surprising to me that there's not more of that litigation happening there because you know, I mean, there are other litigants who strategically they go to the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. Specifically for a reason, right? They know what results you're going to get out of that. And there's no question, it's actually driven a lot of litigation. I've seen it. You know, here I am in the state of Iowa now, um, you know, where a lot of litigation on abortion issues has been moved into the state courts because they view the state courts as much more hospitable rather than the federal courts yep. recognizing the problems of the federal courts, right? Being strategic in that respect. But I think you're right. I think if, if it's looking for, for a high impact litigation in the United States, the Eighth Circuit is the singular place that the, to, to, to go. I always joked around that Congress should route all immigration cases to the Eighth. I mean, because de facto, it's the Ninth. <laughs> de facto controls our international border, foreign policy. I mean, literally foreign policy, now treaties. Like Trump literally made foreign compacts with the governments of Mexico and Guatemala and, and you know Central American Triangle. And that's exactly why the court said for years that you can't get involved in immigration because it really is foreign commerce, foreign affairs. Um, uh, in fact, the Northern District of California, where most of the mischief comes out of, in 1996, quoted that from... Uh, one of the Shaughnessy cases in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was known, and now they just screw with it. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I mean, routed to the eighth, but it, you know, the, the, the fifth is getting better, but I, I even recently I've seen some bad things from there. It's, it's good, it's decent. But for all the talk of all these judges, if you, <sighs> the capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do, to do bad. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. that's a that's point right. that's I think right. a lot of our colleagues miss. And and this is why I'm just, you know, I've kept you for so long because we actually, for our audience, <laughs> we've never spoken in person. And this is kind of, we're just having a, you know, a conversation on air because I feel like I'm just on an island and I want at least a law professor. Like, wow, I found one that actually thinks I'm not <laughs> utterly crazy. I mean, like, I, yeah, yeah. I, th I think, I think. You you need you, you're doing a great job in reorienting people to 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 move away from the judiciary. I think that is an important in my view. I, I've been doing so much in my own study on election law. Like there's a there is such a commitment to the political branches in the Constitution to handle and resolve a lot of things. It is when it comes to elections. Yeah, the times, places, and manner of holding elections. It's left to the states unless Congress wants to step in. And to be honest, like I think. One reason a lot of federal courts feel comfortable stepping on the toes is that they're stepping on the toes of the states and not Congress. And when Congress steps in, maybe there's actually a benefit there yes. for Congress to step in in some of these places. Um, it, Congress decides the qualifications of and elections and returns of its members. There, there is such a commitment that I found in my study of the Constitution that puts so much of this into the political branches. And a lot of my career has been trying to move us away from this judicial supremacy yes. notion and the notion that like, oh, we've got a political problem. <laughs> oh, who gets on the ballot? Oh, who won this thing? Like, like let's, just, let's just ask a court to resolve it. I'm like, no, like that is not, not where we should be making What always bothers me is that the 14th Amendment, Section 5, it, it actually says it's Congress is vested with the power <laughs> to enforce it. 
it's not the courts. Um, but, you know, Justice Brennan basically says, yeah, it is the courts. Everything is the courts um, with his <laughs> yeah. with his ratchet theory there. And and basically we're just caught. Um, I, I mean, I could point to North Carolina. Um, McCrory uh, was the Republican governor. He is no longer governor. There's a Democrat, Roy Cooper. Because of an illegitimate court opinion, the margin of the loss was the sum of the ballots that were ballot harvested pursuant to North Carolina law. Those votes do not count. The court, the federal judiciary has no right to get involved in that. And they did. And like, correct me if I'm wrong. I have not seen. I've seen terrible Supreme Court opinions on a lot of things. On election law, we haven't had bad Supreme Court opinions in a long time, and most of them have been good, but yet somehow it doesn't help us. The lower courts, <laughs> like, they get what they yeah. want. They crushed North Carolina. They won that election for them. Yeah, I've got, I, I'm, I'm about to wrap up here because uh, I, I got another meeting to get to, but I want to just say I think you're right. I think on the election law front – in my view, the Supreme Court has been, again, to the consternation of some of my friends on the left, uh, the Supreme Court has been quite good. But again, it, the, the Supreme Court only hears a limited number of cases. It hears the cases yes. that are brought to it, and it can't cabin all the discretion of the district courts. And so, it, again, it's a losing game if you are sort of relying on the judiciary to, or the sp- Supreme Court in particular to, to resolve all of these disputes. It's only so much you can do. Very well said. Thanks so much for your really, really generous time. I know you got to run um, at Derek T. Muller on Twitter. You could follow him. Let me know if you want me to follow up with questions. Look, you have an open invitation to discuss this anytime. Um, <laughs> well, thank thanks so much so for much. your insight as always. Take care. It's a real pleasure. Take care. Bye. And folks, that was one of the longest shows ever. We are out of time by a mile. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns to dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you all.